The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. And this study this evening is the final message in our series of the Baptist acrostic and also of the Living for Jesus series that we've been in for, for now well over a year. And we're discussing the last letter T in the Baptist acrostic, which stands for two offices of the church. Uh, the first office is that of the pastor. And I've just finished up this morning ten sermons on the office of the pastor. But I'm not going to spend ten weeks talking about deacons. Uh, some Baptist churches don't have any discussion about deacons because they don't think of deacons at all. I don't feel that way. I just don't think that they're worth ten sermons. But uh, it, it's, it's good for us to, it is good for us to, to have deacons. Uh, tonight's service then is going to serve a dual purpose. We'll finish the study of the acrostic with a message about deacons, and then we'll also use this time as an opportunity to ordain a new deacon to the diaconate. And you might wonder, well, why didn't we get a new pastor after preaching about the pastor? Uh, if you can get a new deacon when we're preaching about deacons, why not a pastor? Well, you'll just have to live with that disappointment. I'm sorry about that. So this evening's service is a little bit different. The preaching is going to be much the same. Um, but we're going to add another purpose to this. This will be the formal induction of Brother Matthew Kaczynski into his office. This is most often referred to as the ordination, but strictly speaking, that isn't correct. The ordination has already taken place. That is the election of the man to the office, and we did that back in December. And this part is the ceremony. This is the part where we formally induct uh, our brother into the office of, of the diaconate. So this is the, the formal induction. As I said, we're going to consecrate him to the office and... Um, it's our agreement, as we do this, that he is qualified to serve the church in this way. Now, in December, Jason uh, Guritz was also uh, brought back into the diaconate after his long sojourn in the wilderness, trying to find himself, and now he's found his purpose in life, and he's come back to Brian Baptist Church, and he's in the diaconate ranks once again. Uh, Jason was ordained in 2003, and... Um, we don't need to go back through a ceremony for him. Uh, that The ceremony, we believe, stands good for a lifetime. And so if he wanders off again, then the next time we find him, he'll still be okay if we decide to make him a deacon again. Now, I might mention as well that among Baptists, that ordination in one church is good among all of us if churches agree in faith and order. So if another pastor comes to the church and he's been ordained in another church of like faith, or if a deacon in another church was to come and join here and also of like faith, then we would honor that, that ordination and we wouldn't have to do that again if the church decides to use that person in this office. I enjoy ordination services as I was preparing for this one. I thought back over the many others that we've had over these past 14 years and I look at all of them as, as a good time for the church. I, I love the men that we've been able to serve with here. I've had the pleasure of serving with them. I, and I'm very happy that Matthew was uh, chosen to be a deacon. 
We like to kid around a lot, joke around with each other quite a bit, but in all seriousness, the Kaczynskis have really been a, a highlight of the ministry here in Berean. And I'm especially blessed when I think back about uh, the first Sunday that they visited with us. Uh, that was during the Thanksgiving holiday, I think maybe about three years ago now, getting close to that, uh, somewhere around three years or so ago. And uh, on Thanksgiving, of course, we always, on the Thanksgiving service, we always have lunch here at the church. And uh, Matt and the family stayed for that lunch. And uh, I remember the, the sermon that I preached on that day. Uh, the title of it was, Can These Bones Live? And I preached from Ezekiel chapter 37 in the Valley of the Dead Dry Bones. And that sermon raised some questions. And for about a year or so, or so we, we sorted through many different questions, and Matt and the family kept coming back consistently Sunday after Sunday until they came to understand why we take this position on the, uh, the historical Baptist position on the doctrines of grace. And that particular sermon was uh, about the doctrines of grace. Now, thank the Lord that there are many Baptist churches that are once again have begun to study the scriptures on those, on those subjects and their Many of them are returning to what Baptists believe in the past. And so it's been a delight to be able to, to talk with Matt and see how his understanding of those doctrines has increased. And I know that those that are enlightened by these doctrines, there's a, a great deal of satisfaction in them as they unlock the Scriptures for us and really make the study of the Bible more pleasant and more interesting than ever before. I've never actually met a person who reached understanding of these doctrines at, at a later time in their life or uh, not having understood them at first. That they, they, they haven't said that their, their faith was greatly increased and salvation is such more, much more meaningful when they understand this. But, but this is not the time for us to focus on those doctrines as marvelous as they are. But I will say that in the election of a man to the office of deacon, that's not going to occur unless the man is in full agreement with the Bible and, of course, with our statement of faith on those issues and many more. But now to the matter at hand, our text tonight is Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And I want to speak to you about the office of the deacon, and this text tells us how and why the first deacons were chosen. Acts 6, verse number 1. And in those days, when the number of disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them, and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. This first verse gives us the reason for the selection of deacons. In those days, when the number of disciples was 
multiplied. This is in the early stages of the church, right after Pentecost, not long after Pentecost. And there were great numbers of people that were saved and added to the church. And the numbers was, was miraculous. The first five chapters of Acts show us that the church had phenomenal growth to the point that when we get to Acts chapter 6, this is a church that in modern terms would be called a megachurch. The membership at that time was upwards to about 30,000 converts, and they were growing much faster than the infrastructure of the church could sustain it. Today, a church of that size would have more than 100 people on staff in order to support the ministry, handle all ministry needs. But of course, in those days, they didn't have 75 different ministries for every support group that you can imagine. Uh, but instead, they just did a few things. They studied the Bible, and they prayed, and they preached the Word of God. But there are only 12 men that handled all of the responsibility for these 30,000 people. That was the apostles. And they did all of the work of the ministry. And that forms the basis of this first observation of the need of deacons that they were needed, first of all, for the organizational stability of the church. There were 30,000 people reached and saved, and they weren't reached by people that were pew warmers. These were very active people, and the church grew because the disciples had the commission to preach the gospel, and they were faithful to perform that duty. They received that commission from Christ in Matthew chapter 28 when he told them to go out and make disciples, preach the word, make disciples, teach them, baptize them, teach them to observe all the things, the commandments of the faith. And so the apostles did what they were told, and they believed that that was their duty to keep doing what they were told. And so never letting down on the job, the church was growing very quickly. There were originally just 120 people that were there on the day of Pentecost in the upper room. And when the Holy Spirit came, He energized the church at that time. 3,000 responded to a powerful sermon that was preached by Peter. They believed and they were baptized and added to the church. On the first day of, of Pentecost, 3,000 people get added to the church. And then here by Acts chapter 6, there are ten times that many people. And so now Acts 6 comes... There are 12 apostles. They have the responsibility of ministering to 30,000. And those are just disproportionate numbers. There wasn't a staff of 100 to help them. Today you have computers that link church ministries with church management software. Leadership of the church knows what's going on just about everywhere. But there was none of that with the 12 apostles. So they were overwhelmed with the magnitude of this work. And something had to change. Problems mounted. Church members then are much like church members today. They began to be dissatisfied and they murmured about things. People thought that the leadership was being unfair to them. Some of them that were Jewish Christians that were born in Greek culture were not treated the same as, or at least they thought they weren't, being treated the same as those that were born in Israel. And for that reason, they felt some are neglected and some need food. Well, there are a lot of preaching points in this text, but uh, we don't have time to deal with too many things. Uh, these would be good for you. But we need to consider the time of why we're here tonight and stick to this main part of the subject that the people began to complain and the apostles began to feel, feel a bit like Moses. Here are all of the people murmuring against them. 
and there wasn't enough of them to go around to keep everything running smoothly, and at the same time, keep effectively preaching the Word of God. And so we see in verse number 2 that the apostles called the people together, and they said, it's not good for us to leave the essential work of praying and preaching, teaching the people the Word of God. We can't handle all of this. And so we can't leave the Word of God, they said, to serve tables. And so they say in verse number 3, you need to appoint. And that word appoint there is the same word that we have for ordain. You need to ordain some others to take care of this business. So in these two verses, we have the pattern of the deacon's work set. There are two important tasks that are assigned to deacons in these verses. The first of them is that the deacons are to serve the shepherd. The shepherd is the pastor. The pastors of the Jerusalem church were the apostles, and the first deacons were chosen as support for the pastors. So their job was to take away some of the workload on the pastors. And that's because the more that the pastor has to take care of of all these other duties is the less time that he has to spend on the work of studying, preparing, and praying and preaching and doing, uh, giving the Word of God to the people. So if I could put it to you this way, the apostles told the people, we can't do what you want us to do. There's not time to do all of this. It hinders our ability to preach the Word of God. And so the first consideration we have here is the need of pastors to be relieved of duties that come below the primary responsibilities of the pastor. So the deacon's work is a relief work. A deacon can't approach the job with this attitude, why doesn't the pastor do more of this? Why does he want us to do this? Because when he does that, then he's just taken away his right to exist. And so his, his thought has to be always this, how can I help the pastor do many of these other tasks? Well, that doesn't mean the pastor won't have anything to do. It just means that he gives, is able to give more time to what he's primarily called to do. Now, you, you may look at this and you see in Acts 6 that there are seven deacons that are chosen for 30,000 people. And you say, well, wait just a minute. We, we don't have nearly 30,000 people. I haven't counted you tonight, but I don't think I have to worry about getting to 30,000. And so we have seven deacons. Why do we have seven deacons? Well, I don't think I have to tell you that in our society, this modern society, we're very much pressed for time. Most of you have very little free time. Deacons are the same. They have jobs. They have families. They aren't the paid staff. And so we need more deacons in order to spread the load around. But still there are times when a deacon has to sacrifice. He has to be willing to do this as a labor of love for his church, for the people of God. You know, I appreciate these many, many years of uh, with Brian Petro being on the, on the deacon board, uh, especially in this regard, when I speak to him about something that we need to do, he always says to me, do you want me to take care of that? Do you want me to handle that for you? I never refuse. I mean, I have such love for him, I want him to receive the reward for doing it. Uh, I never want to take away his opportunities. And so you see how I can just turn that around and make this whole thing an act of my kindness as, as we do this. 1 Timothy 3.13 says, A man who uses the office of the deacon well purchases to, purchases to himself a good degree. That means that he rises in the esteem of the people. He's respected uh, as a man for his 
faithfulness, a man who sacrifices for the good of the church and for the cause of Christ. And if he doesn't agree to be used in that way, then he shouldn't be put into the office. So I, I am pleased with our deacons. I'm, I'm pleased with the time that they spend on church work. I appreciate the, the time that they give to help me, sometimes to the point that I'm almost embarrassed to, to ask for help. But in these days, when I, when I need the study time, when we have issues uh, in our own home with my wife's illness and things there, my own health, uh, it's good to have men that can take care of other duties so they can just take my mind away from those things. So the deacons must, must know and the church must understand that this is one of the things that they do. Deacons are subject to the authority of the pastor and their relationship to him is to submit to his leadership. Now, as I mentioned to you this morning, we do have our deacon board, these seven men, but these seven men are, are not the ruling authority of the church. The, the ruling authority is vested in the elders or in the pastors of the church. So the last thing that a deacon would ever want to do is to be a prickly sore spot in the ministry, a person that wants undue authority. He can't be contrary. It's not his job to be another problem to the pastor, just another problem that he needs to solve. Now, in some churches, this is what happens. There are... Uh, Deacons who make the pastor's work grievous. And that is against the scriptures. It's part of the reason that there are some churches that don't want to deal with ordaining deacons. Now, as I read to you this morning, Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as that they must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. And a deacon needs to be an example uh, to the church in that, of being in submission to authority. That it, his, it is his job to be a helper, to make the pastor's work easier. And he should be the last who would ever make things more difficult on the pastor. Now, here's, a, here's an interesting bit of information that defines what a deacon is. The root of the word deacon, or as we'll see in just a minute, the word servant, it's a word that literally means one who kicks up dust. It means one who is always eager about serving others. Now, if you look at verse number 2, it says, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Serve is the word diakonio. That's the word from which we get diaconate, the word from which we get deacon. Serve tables, it says. And this means like a waiter, serves people at a table. And that lead, lends to the word the meaning of an attendant or a waiter. And that needs to be the attitude of a deacon towards the pastor, that he is to relieve the pastor that he can give himself to the word. But I don't want to hog all of the attention because the support that the deacons give to me flows out to you. They're the waiters at your table to serve you. So the first important task is for the deacons to serve the shepherd. Then coming alongside of that will be the second thing the Scripture shows, and that is they are here to serve the sheep. I'm the shepherd, you are the sheep. And the deacons take a lot of that load of my service away, and uh, they do it by serving you in my place. 
Now here in Acts chapter 6 was the case of widows in the church. Now this is emblematic of what the office would become. The first deacons were chosen to meet the needs of the saints, and the first need that we see was the need of these widows. Now in our church, the, the needs are much more complicated. We have some widows, but honestly, our widows don't have the special needs of the widows in Acts chapter 6. They were dealing with destitute widows. These are women that had no means of support because what they had done was they had given up everything to become Christians. And so they weren't widows like many that we have today with property and bank accounts. In the Jerusalem church, there was miserable poverty. And we know that because Paul in his missionary journeys was often raising money in those travels for the poor saints that were at Jerusalem. So we aren't dealing with a widow problem. Now, we could have one, but that's not our problem here. Our widows don't need special attention because they're too poor to make out. But as other, as other problems in the church developed, the deacon's duties expanded as the needs of the church expanded. Now, here, for many years, we've had a deacon care system. Each member is assigned a deacon. That care system hasn't always worked the way that I wanted it to work. And uh, that may be partially my fault because I'm not real demanding. But now that we have seven deacons, we're better able to divide the load of all the membership. And I hope that what we're able to do is to rejuvenate that system and make it work. And so what we want to do is to stay in touch with you. Uh, we want to, to help you when you have a need, to give you a point of contact, a place to start if you have a problem. But we all need to understand that the deacons are not babysitters. Deacons aren't free help to do your household chores. Now, some might be willing to do it if you're sick and you can't do it, but you need to remember that members have responsibilities too. And the deacons are not just for you. The deacons for, are for the entire church. And so we need to regard what their time constraints are, and they're going to give as much help as they possibly can. And as I said, we expect that we, they will be in touch with you. So here's the, here's the essential point of this part of the discussion, that every church duty doesn't rest on the pastor's shoulders. Because the pastor is the paid employee does not mean that the pastor is supposed to do all of the work. That is not a, a biblical uh, method of doing the church's work. Now the concept is that what the pastor does is to show others how to do the work of the Lord and the pastor is the supervisor over that work that's being done. Now let's expand on that thought for just a little bit as the next observation. Number two is the functional ability of the office. Now in verse 4 of Acts 6, the apostles said, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So we see first of all that the, the uh, deacons are given for organizational stability, because there are too many problems in the church to handle, the apostles needed to pray and preach. So that tells us that the diaconate was not established for praying and preaching. Now, I hope Jason doesn't panic about that statement, because uh, the pastor's duties are not primarily, uh, because they are uh, primarily spiritual, doesn't mean, though, that, that the deacons don't have spiritual duties to do. Now, their duties are primarily the temporal, but they also have spiritual duties. Now, uh, this, is a, this is another problem that is perceived to be a problem that shouldn't be a problem because some pastors think 
that deacons should not concern themselves with teaching, correcting, or doing any work that uh, affects the spiritual needs of the people. And they think that if they allow deacons to do that, that they'll have divided loyalties. These are pastors that don't want people to be closer to the deacons than they are to them because they're afraid of a coup. Oh, they might actually fall in behind Jason and they might want to remove the pastor from the pulpit. That usually happens in, in churches. This kind of thing uh, is put down in churches with authoritarian pastors that sit on their perch, they rule the underlings. And I would be dishonest if I were to tell you that fear has never been realized because it has. This has happened in, in churches. It shouldn't happen. If men are chosen uh, with the right qualifications and pastors have the right qualifications, then these are things that ought not to happen. But despite all good efforts, this does happen sometimes that pastors are pitted against the deacons. Before I became the pastor, I was on visitation with a former pastor. We went to one of the members' houses that was uh, a dying man was dying with cancer. And I had a, a close relationship with these people from the time that I came to the church. But I hadn't really been here all that long. But we went to visit the family, and they were very, very welcoming to me. But maybe not so much to the pastor. Now, they weren't rude to him, and I don't I want one to imply that they were. They weren't rude to him. But when we left the home, the pastor said to me, he said, well, it's obvious they think more of me, or of you rather, than they do of me. And then when I visited this family again later on my own, the gentleman said to me, well, we always considered you to be our pastor. Well, they didn't mean any harm by that, not any harm at all. But this is just the way that they felt. They felt that they could be closer to me than they could to him. And really, I think it's a personality thing. Uh, he wasn't very personable. That's not a criticism. It just happens to be a fact. He just wasn't a very personable type. And uh, so those people were, were closer to me than they were to him. Well, that could be a problem if a deacon decided that he was going to exploit that popularity, that he could begin to undermine the pastor. And sometimes that's where the bitter attitudes between pastors and deacons develop. So the solution of many of these churches is don't have deacons. But that's wrong. It's wrong for a church not to have deacons and to put something else in its place if they call it something else and the men aren't qualified actually to be deacons in the church. It's wrong for a church not to do this. We see it in the New Testament. Deacons belong to the ministry of the church. The pastor and the deacons are co-laborers for Christ. We're not competitors. We're complementary in our service. Now, I shepherd the church under Christ and what the deacons do is broaden my shepherding capabilities by proxy. They help to assess some of the spiritual problems and help head them off before there's something that I really need to deal with. Deacons need to be spiritual men. These are men of prayer. They're men that need to know the Bible. They're men that need to be ready to teach when they're needed. They're not required to be preachers, but they can be. Philip was. Stephen was. Sometimes they might get a little bit pushy and try to root me out of the pulpit. But if that coup is a bloodless coup, then I think I can handle it okay. Uh, but it, it is okay for, for deacons to preach. I mean, that, that's a logical place to go when we need to fill the pulpit, if there aren't any other options. And sometimes even when there are, uh, the pastor should be able to go to the deacons. 
And so a deacon should be ready to teach. When a class needs to be filled, they ought to be able to handle that. When the pulpit needs to be filled, then deacons ought to be ready. Uh, when they're called on to teach, first graders, teen class, adult class, they need to be ready. So the functional ability of the office is both temporal and spiritual, and the man must be qualified for both, and he must be willing for both. The pastor can't, and the pastor shouldn't do it all. The people need attention, but deacons can help in both of those areas. Now, we need to, to finish then this evening with this, this very necessary part. Thirdly, is the spiritual quality of the man. Verse number 3. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. I don't really think that we need to spend a lot of time on this. Uh, and here's the reason. We talked about the spiritual qualifications of the pastor. And if you read on in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and you get beyond those first seven verses where it talks about the pastor, next comes the deacons. And then you'll notice in, uh, we'll look at this in just a minute, but you'll notice in, in those verses that the, the qualifications are very, very similar. So you can just go down the list, you say, ditto, 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 pastor, ditto for the deacons. We'll get to that in just a moment. The deacons are chosen from among the godly, from among the reputable, from among the studious, men that are grounded in the faith. Not all men in the church are grounded in the faith. And then let me say that not all men that aren't chosen to be deacons aren't grounded in the faith because they very well may be. So what I'm going to say is not a reflection on any man that's not a deacon. The seven that were chosen in the first church surely were not the only seven among 30,000 people that were honest and of good report and full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Now let, let me address this part for just a minute. John Gill wrote, They were to be men, not only that had the Spirit of God in them, but who were eminent for their rich experiences of grace, and who had superior gifts of the Spirit, whereby they were capable both of defending the truth against opposers and of speaking a word of exhortation to duty, or of comfort under distress, or of reproof to members as circumstances required. Now let me, let me just speak about this phrase, defending the truth against opposition. Our deacon ordination is not strenuous. These men are very capable. Perhaps they would appreciate the opportunity for examination. Maybe they would like for us just, for them just to sit up here and let's ask them questions about what we believe and what they think about uh, our church statement of faith and those things. Now that, that's an examination that I had 40 years ago when I was chosen as a deacon. The ordination that I had was almost exactly the same as you had for a pastor. And uh, I, I was young and I was handed the statement of faith and I was told, learn this. Know this, because you're going to be questioned in front of the entire church on what this means. Well, it was months between the time that I was handed the statement of faith and the time that, of the ordination. Uh, before the church elected to, me, to the office then, there was this in-depth examination, and I was questioned by the congregation on the articles of the faith. And as I said, the ordination wasn't much different at all that you would see in a pastor's ordination. So that was a very trying time. Uh, I was examined, of course, for character and to see whether I could defend the faith. So you might ask, why don't we do that? Why don't we make that a part of this ordination? 
Well, for me, and I would honestly have to say that uh, it wasn't as much trouble for me because I'd started when I was 18 years old uh, with systematic study of the Bible. Before that, I grew up in a pastor's home, never missed any church services. I, I listened and I knew just about everything that was in the statement of faith before it was ever given to me. Well, these men may very well be able to do the same. And I hope none of you are sweating too much, think I'm going to just, that I'm just going to change things up here and, and say, well, let's get to that part of the service tonight. But we're not going to do that because I don't think that we need to go that far. In my conversation with deacons, I know that they satisfactorily support the statement of faith. They know what it means. And they're not required to have the exact knowledge of a pastor. But that doesn't mean they shouldn't know the word. Certainly they should know the word. They should be able to step in at any time. As I said, to teach a class with a little bit of preparation time, they ought to be able to preach a sermon without getting into too much doctrinal trouble. So I'm satisfied with that. I'm satisfied with, with my talks with them. And before a man gets this far in what we're doing tonight, these are things that have already been taken care of. So the deacon must be a spiritual man. He must know the word, have the respect of the people, be known for his compassion, his friendliness, his kindness. Um, the pastoral ministry and deacon ministry is very, very similar, but not exactly the same. And they do run on parallel tracks, as you'll see in First Timothy chapter 3. So let's go to that scripture for just a minute. We'll look at it. Uh, because the offices are similar, you pretty much get the picture of what deacons should be from qualifications of pastors in those first few verses. So if you want to know, well, uh, how does the deacon meet all of those qualifications? Well, just go back and listen to the ten sermons that I gave you on the pastor, and you'll see it's pretty much the same. It looks pretty much the same. But let's look at verse number 8, and here we see the very, very close connection. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre. The first four words nail this down. Likewise must the deacons. Likewise is a word that connects it to the first seven verses. So we would say, similarly, the deacons should be. And then we go on to read. Likewise, the deacons must be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless, even so, must their wives be grave, not slander, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now, you're going to be happy about this part. I'm going to sum all, that up, all of that up in just two words. Two words about deacon qualifications. The first one is exceptional. Exceptional. These qualities make the man exceptional. As I said, not every man in the church will meet these. And if a man is not, and the church is not a deacon, that doesn't mean that he's not exceptional. Many are. And here, I might as well just address the elephant in the room and just hit it head on. There is one requirement that hurts the eligibility of many men to be a deacon, as well as it does the pastor. 
And both offices have this very rigid requirement concerning marriage and divorce. Now, for many men, that requirement reaches into their past, and they've dealt with that. Uh, they're moving forward in stellar dedication uh, to the Lord. And we have men in the church that are like that, and I have no problem saying that these men are exceptional men. In fact, if we were to have a ranking and we looked at knowledge and desire and ability and love of the Lord, then we could say, well, we probably have men in the church that might top our deacons. This is not an indictment against any man that's not chosen to be a deacon. We're only dealing here with the office and what these men are. Being a deacon is a very privileged position, but it's not to be regarded as making the man spiritually superior to others that are in the church. A man who's in the office of the deacon shouldn't be proud of who he is as if he's better than other people. So some of you may look down the list and you may say, well, I, I'm as good as the deacons in this. I might even be a better example than they are. I'm just telling you in this message and for this purpose, deacons must meet what's in this list. So it says he must be grave. That means serious about his duty. He has a trust to perform. He's honest. That's what Acts 6 said. He's truthful. He's not double-tongued. He doesn't go from house to house telling one person one thing, then another person something else. And so if he comes to see you, expect that he'll tell you the truth and that he'll not say more than he's supposed to say. Now let's just pause there for just a moment and talk about that. I always tell deacons that because of the nature of our work, that they will learn things, they will see things, we will discuss things that are not for the general consumption of the church. And so I tell them they'll see and hear things about church members that are very disappointing. First, they have to be able to handle that information without being discouraged. Secondly, they have to keep that information in. They must never tip their hand that they know it. And they can't treat people differently because they know it. Thirdly, it's not helpful for everybody to know what every member of the church is dealing with. If we can help people to get out of a problem, if we can restore them without broadcasting it and making it a public spectacle, then that's best for all of us. Someday you might be on the receiving end of that discretion. And you'll appreciate this, that you're... Your problems are never broadcast to the entire church, but they're handled without everybody knowing it. And for that reason, now just hold on here, for that reason, I tell deacons not to share meeting information with their wives. That's the fourth important requirement. Now, I know that some don't like me to say this, and they're determined that their wife should know everything that they know, bone of bone, flesh of flesh, Brain of brain. This is the exception. If you need to put this into a different category, put it into a different category. I don't intend to treat wives unfairly. This is not prejudice against them. It's not to belittle them. But we don't elect the deacon's wife to the office any more than we elect the pastor's wife to the office. Now, you can ask my wife, and she can tell you that sometimes that she looks at my time requirements and she says, when we got married, I didn't sign up for this. But then she's gracious. And she knows that we both have our ways that we need to serve the Lord. And those 
our different ways. Now, what a wife can do is to repeat some things that she just really didn't know shouldn't be said. And I've had this happen. There are things that have come back to me through the years from uncommon sources, even from people on the other side of the country that said to me, I heard that the deacons, and on it goes. And there are discussions of plans that are in the planning stages, things that never should have gone out of a meeting, never ready to be made public yet, some things that we've discussed and we've discarded, we've decided to scrap the idea. But then some member comes along and not connected to the discussion at all and shouldn't know these things and says to me, are you seriously considering doing that? And I don't wonder how they know it. It went from a deacon to his wife, and that little bitty piece of innocuous information causes me a big headache, and so I end up trying to explain things that I never should have had to explain. If you don't know everything that happens in a deacon's meeting, count yourself blessed. Thank the Lord above that you don't know everything that goes on. You don't need to worry about things that you don't know about that won't hurt you. Now, I mentioned a minute ago about the pastor's wife. She doesn't know everything that I know about what goes on in the church. There is no reason for me to burden her with information that she doesn't need to handle. Things that she doesn't need to think about that will bother her. She doesn't need to be bothered with that. And really, this is the crux of the issue, and, and we, just, we don't need to rehash this. We do believe the Bible. We believe the Bible. Peter said that the woman is the weaker vessel. That's another sermon, so that's another sermon. But he said she is the weaker vessel. She's to be under authority, and that ought to be good enough for us to understand why men are made leaders in the church. And now that everybody's sufficiently angry about that point, then... Let me give you the second word that we need to think about. The first one is the deacons are exceptional. The second word is the word faithful. Now, I might say also uh, that I appreciate it very much when a woman goes outside of the church, and I've said some things like I've just said, and a woman says to me, thank you for teaching us the truth, that I'm very happy in the role that God gave me. Donna Miller goes out almost, I don't know what Steve's done to her, but she goes out almost every time after I preach like this, and she'll tell me that. I'm very well satisfied where God has put me. Faithful, that's verse number nine. Holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. If there's a favorite verse in this section, this has to be mine. It takes me back to the examination that I went through. Holding the mystery of of the faith. What does that mean, holding the mystery of the faith? Well, first of all, it refers to all of the doctrines of the Christian faith. They're said to be mysterious. The reason they're mysterious is because for ages nobody knew about doctrines of the church. These are things that were revealed after we have the, the Bible given to us, after the apostles come, after the church begins. Still, the greater part of the world doesn't know what we know. But the deacon knows. And he knows because he's learned these things from personal study of God's Word and being taught by the teachers of the church. And because he's in the position of helping others, he can't be ignorant. He can't be easily led astray like somebody who just doesn't know. We don't want to confuse people with our doctrines. We have to be grounded and settled in our doctrine. And so the deacon is faithful to the Word. He cherishes the Word as a sacred trust. He lives it. It rules his life. 
He's faithful to all the precepts of the Word. And then not only faithful to the Word, but let me say, He is faithful to the church. He would never get into the position if He weren't. In this past election, we had to consider people that were nominated for offices, and we ruled them out because of this very thing. They're not faithful enough to the church. We look at past performance, and we don't say, well, I wonder if we put this person in the office, if they'll improve. No. They have to prove themselves first before they get into the office. Let them first be proved. That's verse number 10. Well, I'm at the end. The other things that are not mentioned here can be found in those ten messages that I preached you on the pastor. As I said, the, the qualifications are very similar. So you just say, ditto for deacons. 1 Timothy 3.13, Before they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. This is an honorable position. Now we've looked at the... Baptist acrostic for all of these weeks. And it comes down to that end, the last T. There are two offices in the church. Only two. Just two. Only two that God has called out and said, these are the people of leadership for my people, my church, the body of Christ. The pastor and the deacons. And that tells us this is a very, very special position. It's an honorable position. And while a deacon shouldn't have any pride that he's been chosen, still he ought to thank God that by his grace he's given the opportunity to serve in this way. That the church has examined him and the church has found him to be faithful, to be stellar in his performance, that he has the confidence of God's people. And I can tell you there's nothing better than that. And they know that God's people depend on you and they look at you as somebody that, well, they can look up to and, and as a good example of what a Christian should be. Now this evening then, what we want to do is to put the seal of approval on Matthew. Acts 6 tells us how they did this in the apostolic times. In verse number 5 it says, And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom, when they had set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. The symbol of approval is the laying on of hands. This is one of those beautiful, meaningful emblems of the church that you don't see very often. It just just doesn't happen very often. As I said this morning, we don't often ordain deacons. Maybe in your lifetime, you've never actually been to a pastor's ordination or ever seen that taking place. And these are the places where, in ordination services, where the laying on of hands is done. So this is a very, very special emblem of the church that just doesn't get done very often. So you're blessed to see that. You're blessed to have a part in this tonight. So in just a moment, we're going to have Brother Matthew come here, and he's going to kneel for the laying on of hands. And as representatives of the church, the pastor and the deacons lay on hands to signify that approval for the entire church body. We don't convey any grace when we do it. There are no merits that are gained by it. There are no operations of the 
Holy Spirit that are magically conferred upon him. This is just the church's way of saying the man is qualified. Here is a man that we want to serve the Lord and the pastor and the people in this very special way. And then when we're finished on the, with the laying on of hands, as I said, the pastor and deacons will do that part. But then we're going to have Matthew turn around and he will face the entire congregation. And then we want you to come and extend your hand of fellowship and support for him as a new deacon in the church. So you'll come and give him a hand of fellowship. Now the scripture says in um, verse number 6, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. So let's take a, just a moment here to have a word of prayer as we think about this, this solemn duty that we have tonight to ordain Brother Matt to the diaconate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now, and we do thank you, Lord, for uh, this time that we have tonight. We're especially pleased that we have a brother that we do have confidence in. And Lord, uh, again, as I said tonight, it's especially pleasing to me. I know the man, and uh, we love him. We love the family. And this is just a, a wonderful opportunity for our church to have him become a part of the diaconate of the church. So Lord, I pray that you would bless him, help him to uphold his duty, help him to be always a, a good example for, for you and for the Berean Baptist Church that... He would acquit himself well as a man of the faith. So, Lord, we thank, thank you for him and ask you to bless him and be on every member of his family. And, Lord, bless his ministry for as many years that you give him in the Berean Baptist Church. And we give you the praise for all of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.